So as we continue our worship now by coming to the word of the Lord to receive his wisdom, we return once again to this study that we started four weeks ago, and we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And if you've been with us, then you know that at the beginning of this study, we're going to the beginning of the Bible, and what are we looking at? We're looking at the beginnings of all things. So thus far, we have seen the beginnings of the creation of the heavens and the earth. We've seen where that came from, how that all happened, all of that got it. Okay, last week we came together and we saw the beginning of humanity. We saw the creation of the first man and the creation of the first woman. And we left them then in the Garden of Eden. Today, as we come to Genesis chapter 3, we come to the beginning of something else. Something profoundly significant. Something that has radically altered every one of our lives. We come to the beginning of evil, or at least we come to its first manifestation. Kind of a big deal. I was talking with Warren Gage, who's one of my mentors and good friends before the first service, and he's like, you know, this is probably one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, so like, don't mess this up, and uh, (laughs) no pressure, you know, like I wasn't already overwhelmed. My wife's been texting me questions, what about this, and what about this, and gotten all kinds of questions. And maybe that's true for you. You know, maybe you were here with us last week and and you've done kind of what we're hoping to get you to do, which is when you showed up last week, you grabbed one of these worship journals on your way in the door, you took notes during my message last week on page five, and then the next day, this past Monday morning, you opened it up to page seven and you discovered that in fact, today in this moment, I would be talking about Genesis chapter three and more than that, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you studied through this passage of scripture according to the rhythm of grace and you've come with your questions. And right now, here's what you're thinking. Hey, Tom, before you even get into the story, could you please answer a few things for me? Because otherwise I'm going to be massively distracted. Question number one, where did evil come from? Because I studied the story this week, and here's the deal. I, I know that, you know, there's guy, there's this angel, and he's fallen, and his name is Satan, and, and evil is found in Satan, and Satan then brings it to humanity, and he comes in the form of the serpent into the garden, and we'll see all of that in a second, but like, where did it come from in him? Because if I'm remembering correctly, as we've moved through this study, God created the heavens and the earth and everyone and everything in them, including Satan. So, do tell. That's easy. I'll get to that in a second. The second question, the second question is why? Why did God allow this to happen? Let me make it a little bit more intense. Why did God ordain a created order in which evil would be introduced? Feels a little more intense, doesn't it? Because I mean, look, when God created Satan, he knew that Satan was going to fall, did he not? And yet he created him anyway. And if he created him anyway, then is that not actually part of his plan? And the answer to that is emphatically, yes, it is part of his plan. Okay, well, then why is that? So those are easy questions. And, um, and it's good that there's a pizza place next door so we can have lunch a little bit. And... <laughs> Let me give it a shot. I'm going to start with the why question first. Why did God, again, you ready? Ordain, good that you're seated, isn't it? ordain that evil be introduced into the created order. Why? Why would he do that? 
Well, it goes all the way back to the purpose for which he created in the first place. Do you remember what that was? Because we talked about it four weeks ago. God created the heavens and the earth in order to show forth his glory, in order to manifest himself, in order to have a vehicle by which to reveal himself in all of the facets of his being. To whom? To all of the beings in heaven that he created and to all of the beings on earth that he created, including every single one of us. And if you just think through that logically then for a second, you realize, well, that necessitates the existence of evil in this world. Why? Because you and I as created beings and the beings of heaven too come to know, we come to understand, we come to appreciate the value of things in light of their opposites. So for example, that you can relate to this right now, especially we understand, appreciate the value of friendly because right now we're driving around in Fort Lauderdale, right? And it's not friendly. It's anything but friendly. We come to understand and know and appreciate the value of physical light because we know what it's like to be blinded by darkness and to stumble around in the perils of it. Oh, light is very valuable, but we wouldn't know that if we didn't know darkness. We know up because we know down. We know hot because we know cold. We know right because we know left. We know heavy because we know that which is not heavy. You get the idea? And the same is true with God. Again, wait a minute. What is God's design here? What does he want to do? He wants to reveal himself. All right, well, let's pick a few things about God and think about them. God is good. Indeed, he is infinitely good. He himself is the definition of good. If you want to claim to be a good person, understand that it's defined as goodness of God. So that just, it just ruins it right there, doesn't it? It's game over. But how would we ever know? How would we ever understand? How would we ever fully appreciate and for forever worship God for his infinite goodness if We did not spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever years you get in this life, which is an infinitesimally small period of time in comparison with eternity, coming to know by experience evil. Oh, good shines a little brighter when we know evil, doesn't it? When we wallow in it, when we're afflicted by it, when we afflict other people by it. We know good because we know evil. What about God's justice? God is just. Man, he is infinitely just. Well, how would you appreciate that if you didn't know the opposite, which is injustice? How would you long for that if you didn't know the opposite, which is injustice? How would you worship him for forever, for his justice, if you never knew what injustice was like, what it felt like, what it looked like, what it caused? God is beautiful. Well, what is beauty apart from ugliness? In the presence of God, there is joy. What is joy without the experience of sorrow? What is strength without weakness? What is love without hate? What is life without death? And by the way, what is grace and mercy? And how would you ever worship the Lord God and appreciate the value of that and for forever worship Him for His grace and mercy if you had never had need of it? And if you didn't know also what judgment is and what wrath is and all of these other biblical terms that in our culture are just so amazingly uncomfortable and yet still there. I'd actually thought about having you guys come in, and then before I started the message, saying, okay, we'll turn in your worship journal to page 5, not just because I want you to know ad nauseum that page 5 is the notes page, in case you haven't figured that out. It's for you. But I thought about having you guys turn in your worship journal to page 5, and then just take a few minutes and to write down the top three things that you most love about God, the top three things that most move your heart to adore Him and to worship Him. Because here's the deal. I guarantee you that the top three things for everybody in this room are three things that you most love and worship God for because you know their opposites. Because 
of the existence of evil in this world. And you say, well, then, <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I kind of understand that intellectually, but holy cow, Tom. I mean, what do you do? I mean, how do you justify all of the crud that has come into this world as a result of the evil in this world? And crud, incidentally, was the kindest term that I could come up with to describe it. Abuse, holocaust, war. I mean, good grief, it is like a tidal wave as you begin to think about it. And at some point it becomes all you can see. It's overwhelming, isn't it? How do you justify that? I don't have an answer for that. I I don't justify that. I can't justify that. I give that to the Lord. And here's what he says, that for all of eternity, he will justify that. That the wave of that sorrow, that the wave of that suffering, that the wave of all of that, again, I'll just use the word crud, it's the best I've got, will be followed by a wave that will swallow it up. And here's what it is a wave of. It is a wave of infinite glory that you and I would never, ever have seen and worship the Lord God for. Are you ready? Not for 50 years, not for 60 years, not for 80 years, not for 90 years, not for 150 years. Let's just say you have great genes. But for forever. The glory to be revealed is and shall be so great that, and we have no category for this, For all of eternity, we will actually be thankful for the introduction of evil into the world in which we live, as horrifying as it is to us today. Ponder that. It's like, boom. You can only receive that by faith. And I would point out to you, too, that in ordaining that evil exists in this world, God at the very same time did not then divorce himself from this world, did he? He didn't run from evil. He didn't run from suffering. He didn't run from betrayal. He didn't run from death. But indeed, he ordained that he himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, would become the single most profound sufferer ever. Ever. And he's ordained as well, since he is the man of sorrows. Since he is the only one capable of suffering infinitely, and he did, that you find him there. I will tell you, you will come closer to Christ in your suffering than you'll ever do in all of those other seasons of life that you'd like to get to (laughs) so that you could get out of your suffering. God redeems it wholly and entirely and completely. And the wave that's coming that we can't see, but we can by faith, will make sense of it all. So, That's my answer to question number two, which is the why question. But now the the next question is, and I didn't forget, where did it come from in the first place? Because again, I mean, God created everything, heaven's earth, all the beings of heaven, all the beings of earth, and Satan. And then all of a sudden, he goes bad. He goes rogue. I mean, I thought that God declared it all very good at the end of the created order, didn't he? He did. I read that. Didn't you read that? We heard that. So now, he's bad? horrifyingly bad. How did that happen? I don't have an answer for that either. I cannot connect all the dots on that. But here's the answer that I will give you from the Bible, and it doesn't connect all the dots for us, so know that. The Scriptures come to us resoundingly again and again and again and again, and they say evil came from the creature, not the Creator. Evil came from the creature, not the Creator. Evil came from the creature, not the Creator, in whom there is light and there is no darkness who is not the father 
of evil or of sin or of wickedness or of any other such thing. It entered into creation, yes. It was ordained of God. Clearly, He knew it. He created Him knowing it was going to happen, and He needed it to accomplish His purpose. I've said all of those things, and yet He cannot be charged with it. And you're like, well, I don't understand how He can't be charged with it, because as I connect the dots, it kind of, you know, like... I'm feeling a little heretical, but I'd like to connect that last dot because it suggests that maybe it goes and the last dot and the last dot would then be God. Tom, and can you please explain why I shouldn't connect that dot? Yes, I can. Because God says that that dot is not to be connected. And here's what else he says. He comes to me and he comes to you and he says, look, let's talk a little bit about who you are and who I am. And let's just put it in plain language. I am infinite and you are finite. So what that means, practically speaking, is that there will be things about God and about His ways and about His words and about His thoughts and all of these other things that occasionally we will come up against that with our tiny little finite minds, we cannot understand. Oh God, when I connect the dots, I, I just, I, you know, like I'm a, little, I'm just a little scared to connect that last dot rightly because the Bible says, no, that, that doesn't exist. That, that doesn't work. But I can't explain how that doesn't work. And God's like, well, why do you feel the need to explain it? You're finite. I'm infinite. I've told you my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I've explained all of this to you. You should reasonably expect at times to come up across things about me that you're just not going to be able to connect all the dots on. And please don't require me, the infinite God, to become finite so that you can understand it. Instead, accept what I tell you, which is that, well, in me, God, there's there's just light, no darkness. I'm not the father of evil, Satan, sin, or any of it. Oh, and incidentally, I cannot do anything other than to tell you the truth and satisfy yourself in that. We need to remember who our Lord is, and we need to remember who we are. So here's what I want to do today. Evil enters into the world. It enters into the world through Satan. Satan comes to the first man and the first woman in whom we are all of us. We descend from them. That's the idea. And he tempts them, and they fall, and then there's a promise of a redeemer. So I want to do three things. One, I want to see how Satan works because he doesn't just work on them in this particular way. He tempts us the same way. Two, I want to see the pattern by which they fall because they're not the only ones who fall by that particular pattern. I'll show you that in the Bible. And if you think about your own life, you'll be going, yeah, you don't need to give me any more examples. I see that. I know that. I've experienced that. And lastly, since we are all of us fallen, And this story calls us to deal honestly with that, not to hide that. Hiding it is not the key to wholeness. It's not the road to redemption. It calls us to confess it, to own it, to stop blaming it on other people, to be real. All right, then what do you do with your fallenness? Where do you take it? Because that's in here too. So we pick up our study today in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where Moses says this. He says, now the serpent who again is animated or possessed by Satan was more crafty, which prompts you to now look for something crafty. And oh, that's what you get. He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had what? Because I think it's a significant word that the Lord God had made along with everything else. So this story comes to me and it comes to you not as some kind of a mythological tale, guys. It's not Moses' way of explaining the creation of the heavens and the earth and the existence of evil and humanity and where did we come from and all of that stuff. It's not coming to us and presenting in that fashion. It presents to us literally 
In other words, it's coming to us with a real Adam and a real Eve and a real garden with real trees and a real tree of life and a real tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that God has said, do not eat from this tree lest you die already in the narrative to the man and the woman who here are again in the garden. It comes to us with a real adversary, with a real name, who comes with real temptations, and it comes with a real pattern of fallenness that afflicts all of us, and then it promises us a real redeemer as well. And so Satan, then we read what? Said to the woman. The word said is massively important. And why is that? Because serpents don't speak. Animals do not talk. And so this is not just a surprise to us, it's a surprise to her, and it speaks literally, in this case, to the craftiness of the evil one. Guys, the evil one, in the form of this talking snake, okay, is going to slither into the garden. He's done that now. He's going to tempt the man through the woman, so he's subverting the family structure, to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God has drawn a circle around and said, hey, listen, don't eat from this one tree. You can eat from all the other trees, just not this one, and here's why because it will bring you death. That's the truth. I only know how to tell the truth. He's going to tempt them to eat from the fruit of that tree. And so notice how he comes. He doesn't come in person. He doesn't show up and walk up and shake their hand and go, hey, listen, I'm Satan, otherwise known as the evil one. And uh, here's the deal. It's wonderful to meet your acquaintance. I'm going to try now to convince you that God is a liar and that what will actually bring you death will actually bring you life, because that's the way I do these things. And so Here's the deal. I'm going to make my case to you guys to eat from the fruit of this tree. He doesn't do that. He comes as a talking snake, which suggests what? Because it's very crafty. It suggests that he himself has already eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And not only has he not died, but good grief, he has benefited massively. He is now a snake that unlike any other creature on the planet, except for humans, can talk. Good grief, he's saying. Adam and Eve, can you imagine the benefits that you would receive if you ate from this tree that God is depriving you of. You know, with His commandment. It's brilliant, isn't it? We are massively outmatched. And so God comes and He gives us wisdom for how to see and how to discern the ways of our enemy, how to come to know His voice recognize it when we hear it, that we might recognize and run to the voice of our Savior instead. And so Satan said to the woman, and now notice what he says. He says, did God actually say? So he gives to her a question. He's going to draw her into a conversation, you see, about the commandment of God. And then he takes the commandment of God and he inverts it entirely. He turns it completely inside out and for a reason. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which, of course, is not the case. God said, no, no, no. Look at the abundance of my generosity towards you. Eat from every tree in the garden except for this one, because, again, if you eat from this one, you get death. Satan wants to draw their attention, her attention, to the one tree that she's deprived of. And he wants her to believe that instead of death oh man, she's going to experience life. I mean, he's a talking snake. Can you imagine what she'll be able to do? Get the idea? So he wants her to feel restricted by the command of God. And so in his subtlety and craftiness, he comes in like a talking snake and he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the woman then, instead of hacking off his head with a garden hoe, which is what she should have done, 
And the man who's sitting there allowing this all to occur instead of hacking off the head of the serpent, which he should have done, sat there quietly and passively. The woman is drawn into the conversation. She thinks to correct the serpent, but this is exactly what he wants. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And now she adds something to the command of God, which God did not command. She says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God said nothing about touching it. You can touch it if you want. That's not a big deal. I mean, you know, it might be smart not to, but he didn't say anything about touching it. So what does that suggest? It suggests she's feeling restricted. The command of God is getting bigger, more onerous. In other words, it suggests that the subtlety of the serpent is working on her and the serpent knows it. And so he pounces on it. And so the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he comes right out and he calls God a liar. And now he provides God with a reason for misleading them. He says, you shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, I mean, lady, I'm a talking snake. Can you imagine what you're going to be able to do? In fact, let me tell you what you're going to be able to do. You're going to be able to be just like God. So what kind of a world do you want to create? What kind of a heavens and earth will you spin off in all of your new powers? How many beings of heaven and earth will now begin to worship at your feet instead of you having to worship at God's feet. Good grief. And now watch where it all goes wrong. Because this is it. And it all goes wrong according to a very particular pattern that shows up not just in their lives, but in my life and in your life when Satan comes to me and he comes to you with one of the commands of God that's designed to keep us from death. Think about that. The commands of God are designed to keep us from death. Death of all kinds, really. Death of marriage, death of relationship, death of conscience, death of reputation, death of finances, death of integrity, death of mind, body, and soul. And we live in a culture in which we say, oh, no, 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 that's not the case. You can do whatever the heck you want. And it is a culture full of death. Is it not? It's like the law of gravity. You can tell me all day and night and convince me that if I jump off the building, the law of gravity is not going to apply to me, even though it applies to every other human being that has ever walked the face of the planet. And when I jump, I'm not going to fly. And neither are you. So it is with the laws of God. He's like, look, I told you about the law of gravity, so don't do that. And now I've told you about this. Don't do this. You're not going to be the first person in history that the law of death does not apply to. And we do it all the time. Satan comes to us and he says, look, here's the deal. Has God really said that you, you can't do that? No, God said that I can do it, but I can only do it in marriage. I'll just state it. Okay, that's a field of trees. Sorry. It is. It's a garden. Oh, you're not going to die. You will not experience death or consequences of any kind. And in fact, you have never lived like you will live if. Wow. So when the woman, what? Because there are three words in this pattern. And I want you to see all three. When the woman saw, that's word number one, that the tree was good. It's translated good. It's the Hebrew word tov. It's translated differently in different locations. 
but it means beautiful, it means desirable, it means attractive, it means alluring, it was, it was good, it was attractive in that sense for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. So you hear that desirability there, and that the tree was also, now he says, to be desired, to make one wise, or so she thinks. She did what? Because it's word number three. She took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave some to her husband, who was right there with her for crying out loud, and he ate... And then, death. Things begin to die. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked and alienated immediately, both from each other, incidentally, and also from God. And they recognized also that they desperately needed some way to cover over what they had done. Good grief, and here's all they could do. It says, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Why loincloths? Why did they cover, I'm going to say this sensitively as I can, their procreative parts? Why didn't they cover their eyes? That's what they saw it with. Why didn't they cover their hearts? That's what they desired it with. Why didn't they cover their hand? That's what they grabbed it with. Why didn't they cover their mouth? That's what they ate it with. It's obvious they recognized in this, in, in this immediately that they had brought sin and shame and death, not just upon themselves, but everyone who would proceed from them procreatively. All of humanity falls right here. They sew fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths because they recognized we didn't just blow it for us, we blew it for, well, the whole of the human race. And that's kind of an interesting sort of a side note principle in this, and that is that when we fall, we never fall in isolation. We always fall in community. That is to say that our falls affect everyone that are connected with us. That's why we know the words, I'm sorry, and use them so frequently. All right, you see the pattern? It's not just here. We see it again in Genesis 6 in the generation of Noah, verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, what? Saw that the daughters of man were what? Tove, translated here attractive. And then they what? They took as their wives any they chose. And in the very next chapter, God wiped out everybody in a flood. So that was a bummer. It's kind of a big effect. We see it again with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. They're living in the land of Canaan and a famine strikes the land of Canaan. They don't have enough food to sustain their crops and herds and all of that other stuff. And so they decide they're going to go down to Egypt because Egypt is watered by the Nile. So it's famine proof to some degree. And there's food there. So they pack up, they start heading to Egypt. And then Abraham, and I want you to imagine this because this could not have gone well, has this conversation with his wife in which he says, honey, um, here's the deal. You are very tov. You are amazingly beautiful. You're incredibly attractive. You're a desirable and alluring woman. So, so far it's going well, isn't it? I mean, he's on it right now. At this point, he's going right on. I'm doing well. And this is where it all comes undone. He says, so what's going to happen is when we get down to Egypt, the Egyptians are going to, are you ready? See that you are tov. And because they will not take a married man or married woman, rather, they'll kill me so that they can take you. They can take you. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to get down there and just, we'll tell all the servants too. So everybody will understand what the story is. When we get down there, you're not my wife. You're my sister. Got it? What a guy. Isn't that glorious? Wow. Impressive. 
That's what, exactly what happens. They get down there. They go with the sister narrative. The Egyptians see that she is Tov, and Pharaoh takes her into his harem. God protects her from that, but now get this. Abraham does that twice. There's a whole other story in which he does the same thing. And then his son Isaac with Rebekah, same deal. Why is that? Well, we never fall alone, do we? It affects everybody that we're connected to. We see it again with David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Go study it this afternoon. He sees her. He sees her. She's Tove. He understands because he's told that she's a married woman. She is a forbidden woman. And yet what does he do? He sends his guys and he takes her. And his whole family is devastated, as is the nation. The effects spread. It's like a virus. Okay, so Adam and Eve fall. And then we read in verse 8 that after their fall, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I want to pause and say, what is God doing here? Because what he's doing here, his disposition, his heart, Adam and Eve and me and you would never see, we would never know, we would never and for forever worship him for, but for the existence of evil. Here's how God could have come. He could have come stomping through the garden in anger. He could have come and grabbed these guys and said, hey, you know what? What is your problem? Like, what in the world were you thinking? I know what you did, and I can't even imagine a reason for doing it. Seriously, like, what is it about my generosity that made you think that in drawing a circle around this one tree, I was lying to you when I said that it would bring you death? Good grief, have I not given you enough life? I say one thing, don't do this one thing, and in order to do this one thing, you have to first believe that I'm a total liar. Like, what is it about our history of relationship together that led you to believe that I would lie to you or to anyone else for that matter? Do explain. I'm done with you. It's going to take you out and start over. That's what we would do. And it betrays a different kind of heart. I think our fallenness ought to make us far more compassionate toward the fallen. The fact that we're all made of the same clay ought to make us far more compassionate to those who have defects in their clay too. Maybe different ones, but are they any more or less defective than we? No. God, nevertheless, who is altogether perfect, comes. He comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He knows what's happened, and He's coming to seek and to save the lost. He comes calling to repentance, to brutal honesty. So after their fall, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, (laughs) coming to seek and save the lost, but they didn't know that. And so the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, assuming that he would treat them the way that they would treat them if they were him. They hid among the trees of the garden, which is what we try to do with our sin too. I want to hide it from you. I want to hide it from God. I want to hide it from everyone I can. I want to hide it behind what other people have done to me 50 years ago or 50 minutes ago. I want to hide it between, you know, this is the hand I've been dealt, and that's my excuse. My, you know what? There's no excuses in repentance. God's looking for who you are, really, what you've done, really. And I know that it is psychologically traumatic. That's why these guys are hiding. They're like, good grief, we don't really want to have to deal with this. We've just brought ruin not just upon ourselves, but the whole human race. You want to talk about a big one? Whoa! Everybody affected by what I did? oh man, I'm hiding in the bushes. 
I don't want to have to deal with that. But we need, by God's grace, to endure the trauma of being honest with God about who we in fact are and what we've in fact done and put aside all of our excuses and say, here it is, ugly as it is, no more leaves, no more trees, no more bushes, no more hiding. And that is where you're healed. That's where forgiveness happens. Well, they don't quite completely do that. It's interesting how the story goes. They hide from him among the trees of the garden, and and God's not going to let them hide. He doesn't go, okay, sure, I gave you a shot, and you didn't take that. Like, you were lucky to get the shot, given all that you've done, but fine. He's the hound of heaven. He will not let you go. He keeps pursuing and pursuing and pursuing until he gets his man or woman. That's the way that he works. And so the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where he is. He's giving him a chance to come out and be honest. And so Adam came forth, no doubt very sheepishly, from behind you know, one of the trees or the shrubbery or whatever. And he said, he said I, heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I have reason to be. Because I was naked and exposed in my sin to your judgment and to your wrath. I've blown it for the whole stinking human race. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Does he know the answer? Sure, he knows the answer. He's drawing him out. He's drawing him out. He's drawing out the poison. And Adam says, well, yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I ate from the tree and... But, you know, truthfully, Lord, I mean, as I'm now processing it and my fear, I'm thinking that maybe, whereas I am guilty, of course, this woman that you gave me, I'm not even going to look at her right now because I know she's giving me the darts suddenly. This woman over here that you gave me, that you, that you gave me, and she's the one that enticed me to do it. I mean, she's the one. She ate and the serpent and the whole deal, and then she gave it to me. And I, yeah, I mean, I could have done it differently and all, but you made her, so maybe it's your fault. And she, and clearly, at the very least, it's her fault. And, okay, and then he turns to the woman and says, and? And she says, well, um, yeah, actually, that's true. He, I, this, I did eat, and then I gave it to him, and, and he and I are going to talk about that later. We're going we're to build the first doghouse together ever. And then that's just where he's going to be from now on. So, yeah, it's not going to go well. And so, but here's the deal, God. It was the serpent, actually, who enticed me. And you made the serpent. We read that earlier. Lord, that's in your word. You made the serpent, enticed me. No more excuses. So what does God do? He brings consequences. There are consequences. When you jump off of a building, gravity takes hold of you. It's remarkable. And you fall. When you violate the commands of God meant to save your life, you experience a form of death. There are consequences. And so he cursed the woman and he said, look, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And because you have subverted the authority structure in your home, the authority structure in your home will forever be a frustration to you. Now, isn't that true? Don't say anything. Okay, don't don't indicate your answer. Just inside go right on. It's true, isn't it? If you threw an elbow right there, you are so going to pay for that. God cursed the man. He said, the earth that you were supposed to subdue is now going to subdue you. From dust you came and to dust you shall return. That is to say, you will die, she will die. The whole of the human race will experience death. But I do raise up living beings from the dust. So keep that in mind. More than that, 
You're going to have to produce bread by your labors. Well, it's going to bring forth the sweat of your brow now to do that because the earth is going to resist you. It's not just going to bring forth your crops. It's going to bring forth thorns, he says. And then God curses the serpent. And in his curse to the serpent, he gives the promise of a redeemer. He preaches the gospel for the very first time. And I'm going to read this to you, but I'm going to correct this horribly translated verse by saying this. What it says literally is, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You have undone her. She, in the end, is going to undo you. It's a total reversal. And between your seed, that is the most significant word in the whole verse, and her seed. Now, why is that such a significant word? Because women don't have seed. That is true biologically, and the Bible respects that biological truth everywhere, even in the other writings of Moses, except for right here. So what then is this suggesting? This is suggesting that one who will come forth from the woman will be conceived supernaturally. She will, he will be conceived without the aid of a human father. He will be the one who will do then what? He shall bruise the head of the serpent who is Satan, the idea being that he will crush it and kill him but he will suffer infinitely in doing it. And even he will die. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. You will bite his heel as he stomps down upon your head. And the bite of a poisonous snake, guys, is a deadly wound. That's the idea. And then lastly, we read, verse 21, that the Lord God made provision for Adam and Eve. He did something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. He made for Adam and for his wife garments of animal skins is the idea, and he clothed them. That is to say, God sacrificed innocent lives, animals in this case, so that by that sacrifice he could cover over the sin and the shame of these two guilty people. And that animal sacrifice then is one of many that we run all the way through the Bible as you go through it, all of which point to Jesus. That's The idea who through a supernatural conception without a human father entered into our humanity and fully immersed himself in our suffering. Man of sorrows, peasant, Galilean, slave Jew of the first century. My goodness, you couldn't get any lower. Born in a stable. Jesus. For you see, Adam in his sin found himself in need of the slaughter of innocent animals that his sin and shame might be covered over. However, Jesus assumed our sin and shame, and then he hung naked on a cross, which should speak to us incidentally, so that he, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, could provide a covering for us. Adam's sin called forth thorns from the ground. Jesus wore a crown of thorns to bear his and our curse. Adam's sin covered the brow of humanity with sweat for the production of bread. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat blood that he might then suffer and die and offer himself as the living bread of life to all who believe. The, true, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil brought forth death to Adam and to the rest of humanity, all of us. Jesus suffered on a tree of death that he then turned into the tree of life. And every time we take communion in faith, we eat its fruit, his body, his blood. That brings eternal life. Adam turned the garden into a grave. Jesus, having suffered death for our sin, came forth from a grave located in a garden, crushing the head of the serpent and offering to all who will believe freely forgiveness and eternal life for the truly repentant, for the honest. And he comes looking for you. He hunts you down. 
He gets his man or his woman. He pursues you in love. It's beautiful. God is not the author of sin and evil. Satan is. God is the one who comes to us in our evil and in our sin and rescues us from it at the expense of his own life, having infinitely suffered in our place. And you know what? We would never know that about him. We would never experience any of that. We would not for forever, as opposed to 50, 60, 80, 90, whatever, how many years you get, for forever worship and serve him for that, but for the existence of evil in this world in which we live. So, Let me ask you this, three questions. Number one, how is Satan tempting you to fall right now? Because we've seen how he works. So then how is he doing that? Like what form of slavery is he trying to pass off to you as freedom? What thing that's going to bring you massive pain, and not just you, but, you know, is he trying to pass off to you as pleasure? What form of death is he coming and trying to pawn off on you as life? It's how he works. It's what he does. Secondly, where do you see the biblical pattern of tragedy in your life right now? In other words, what is that forbidden thing that looks good and desirable, but if you take it, you get slavery, not freedom. You get pain, not pleasure. You get death, not life. For you and all connected. And then, lastly, what are you doing with your sin and fallenness? Are you trying to hide it like Adam? Because it's just too psychologically traumatic to go there. Go there by God's grace and be relieved of the trauma. Know that when he said that it was finished, it really was for you. Take it to the Lord for the forgiveness you need, for the healing that you need, and for the wisdom that you need to see these patterns as they show up in your life and the strength that you need to break them. And so then we've seen how the serpent works. We've seen the pattern. And we know who, honestly, to come to in repentance and faith. Last question. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your great glory. For your glory, oh God, is great. Lord, we thank you for the tidal wave of glory that is coming on the backside and through the vehicle, in some sense, of all of the crud that we see, that we experience, that we deal out in this life. And for it, Lord, we are thankful. You will justify your holy name, and you will do it for forever and more than that. Oh God, we thank you that you did not leave us in a world of tragedy and of suffering, but instead you yourself became the ultimate sufferer so that by your suffering we might be healed. Let us be healed, Lord. Bring us in humility and in honesty and in faith to the only one who can heal us. Let us own our sins and faults and stuff. And let us own then also your forgiveness, your righteousness, your joy, your freedom, your release, your power, your presence. All that is you. In ever-increasing measure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.